So both of our scripture readings this afternoon come from 1 Corinthians, a section from chapter 6 and then from chapter 10. So we'll start with 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And then ahead to chapter 10, starting in verse 23. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own but each one the other's well-being. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market, asking no questions for conscience' sake, for the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. If any of those who do not believe invites you to dinner and you desire to go, eat whatever is set before you, asking no question for conscience' sake. But if anyone says to you, this was offered to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who told you, And for conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. Conscience, I say, not your own, but that of the other. For why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? But if I partake with thanks, why am I evil spoken of for the food over which I give thanks? Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So far, God's holy, inspired word. We'll look also at Lord's Day 34 in the Heidelberg Catechism. You can find it on page uh, 888 in the back of your Psalter hymnals if you're following along. So Lord's Day 34, the first question asks, what is God's law? And we have the Ten Commandments listed there, which we heard this morning. 
Question 93 asks how the commandments are divided. and talks about the two tables of the law. And then I'll read 94 and 95. So this is the beginning, of course, the beginning of the treatment of the, each of the Ten Commandments. What does the Lord require in the first commandment? That I, not wanting to endanger my own salvation, avoid and shun all idolatry, sorcery, superstitious rites, and prayer to saints or to other creatures. That I rightly know the only true God, trust him alone, and look to God for every good thing, humbly and patiently, and love, fear, and honor him with all my heart. In short, that I renounce all created things rather than go against God's will in any way. And what is idolatry? Idolatry is having or inventing something in which one trusts in place of or alongside of the only true God who has revealed himself in his word. <clears throat> this, this sermon was written by Dr. Joel Beakey, a pastor of the Heritage Reform Congregation in Grand Rapids, Michigan. This past year has been a significant one in our national life as our elected representatives continue to govern in the way that seems best to them. In many ways, it was a disturbing year, and I'm sure many of you read with shock and perhaps with horror about how, for example, Bill C-16 was used to force Canadians to express support for the existence of various gender identities beyond the biological categories of male and female, and to use pronouns demanded by those who identify with these other genders. Or how Bill C-4 was passed unanimously, which effectively criminalizes any kind of support or counseling for those seeking help to reduce or change their own homosexual behavior. Or the rapid expansion of medical assistance in dying, or MAID, which is funded in every province in our country, and as a consequence ensures that patients who are suffering have greater access to euthanasia than to social supports, palliative care, or psychological counseling. The result being that more than 20,000 Canadians have died by MAID. If God was not on the throne, we would despair. This is tragedy. And then you think about what's going on in China. Reformed Christians in seminaries, schools, churches, being persecuted, being shut down, being thrown in prison. We might be tempted to say, well, where's God in all of this? What is going on in our nation, in our world? And yet we say this afternoon, on the first Sabbath of the new year, Jesus is well. He is on his throne. He's the king on the holy hill of Zion. And he's unswervingly committed this year, as always, to uphold his people, to minister to his church, to establish his spiritual kingdom, and to increase your conformity, dear believer, to his only begotten Son. Despite all that goes on around us, he will work all things together to produce your sanctification, your eternal salvation. 
Now, that doesn't mean we're not concerned about our nation, about China, about all kinds of other places. But it means we don't panic. It means we don't despair. It means we pray on and we act where we can against the causes of evil. But we look to King Jesus to establish his church. And even in the midst of persecution, even in the midst of immorality, he can turn things around for good. He is, after all, the King of Kings. And so the goal of life is not that everything goes as smoothly as possible. The goal of life is that you and I will walk to a different drummer than the world walks and to a different beat. The goal is that we will stand out as people that live for the glory of God, that put no other idols before God, that God is number one. This is the only way to live. This is the only way to have a genuine, spirit-worked New Year's resolution. And this is the resolution I want to bring you on the first Sabbath of this year, for all the Sabbaths of this year. Let this be our emphasis for this year. Cast off the works of darkness, put on the Lord Jesus Christ for the glory of God. And may that be the goal of every day of our lives, not just the Lord's Day, and the goal of everything we say, everything we think, everything we do. Lord, help us to live intentionally with the consciousness that you deserve all glory, that you are worthy of all glory, and help us to give all glory to you. And so our text this afternoon is from 1 Corinthians 6.20 and 1 Corinthians 10.31. 620, for you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And 1031, therefore whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And we look at that in conjunction with Lord's Day 34 of our Heidelberg Catechism uh, that, that we went through. And in particular, again, to highlight question 94, what does the Lord require in the first commandment? That I, not wanting to endanger my own salvation, avoid and shun all idolatry, sorcery, superstitious rites, and prayer to saints or other creatures. That I rightly know the only true God, trust him alone, and look to God for every good thing humbly and patiently, and love, fear, and honor him with all my heart. In short, that I renounce all created things rather than go against God's will in any way. And what is idolatry? Idolatry is having or invented something in which one trusts in place of or alongside of the only true God who has revealed himself in his word. So our theme this afternoon is the best resolution to put God first, soli deo gloria. We want to look at four thoughts with regards to this resolution. One, its importance. Two, its necessity. Three, its obedience. And four, its application. Well, both texts we looked at this afternoon teach us that the greatest calling we have in our lives, the purpose for which God made us originally in Adam, is to glorify him. 
All kinds of resolutions have been made by all kinds of people in this past week. But this is the resolution that we need for every Lord's Day, for every day of our lives. Resolved by the grace of the Holy Spirit, having a mental intention, a spiritual intention, an emotional intention, a psychological intention, intending with our whole mind, our whole soul, all of our strength to live for one purpose. Whatsoever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all for the glory of God. Now we can't do that ourselves, of course. That's why I'm calling this a spirit-worked resolution. But this is the resolution we need to have. We need to lean on the Spirit as we seek grace to carry out this resolution. And so our lives need intentional living. Every morning when we get up, this should be our prayer this year. Lord, help me to live in my thoughts, in my words, in my actions to your glory. To put no other idol before you. To live supremely for you today. Only the Bible lays this perspective of life before us. You don't find this in the great poets of ages past, except biblical ones or God-fearing ones. You don't find it in ancient philosophers who grapple with the meaning of life. You don't find it in the manifestos of political parties. You don't find it written about by our modern media. This is the great secret and yet the great manifest purpose that God has for mankind, that God has for you, There's only one way to live, one way to die, soli Deo Gloria. This is absolutely, critically important. But that raises the question, doesn't it? What is the glory of God? We bandy about all kinds of theological words and ideas and concepts about God in our religious language, but sometimes we forget how to even define or or what these things are. What is the glory of God? Well, God's glory is the radiant beauty and brightness of the sum of all that he is, the sum of all of his attributes, his wisdom, his power, his holiness, his justice, his goodness, his truth. God's glory is is the weightiness, worthy of value, God's supreme value. It is the light in which he dwells, the light which no man can approach unto. God's glory is his purity, his holiness, his love, his majesty. He is weighty, he's worthy to be served, to be feared, and to be adored. Children, you know that that sunlight can be broken into various colors, right? In school, perhaps in your lessons, maybe you've taken a wedge of glass called a prism, and you maybe put it on a stand and in a darkened room you shine a jet of pure white light onto the prism and then it breaks the light into all the colors that make up the light red, orange, yellow, green, blue and so on that's what God's glory is like God's glory just like you can't look into the sun without damaging your eyes you can't look into the light and the glory of God and gather all of it to yourself because it's too much, it's too bright, it's too overwhelming. And so God, through the scriptures, he takes the light of who he is, the glory of who he is, and shines it through the prism 
so that it comes out in different colors and different attributes and we see different things about God. But in God, it's all one. It's pure glory. We need to live for that glory. We need to exalt God for his glory. We need to love him in his glory. We need to love him just as he is in his word revealed to us. We need to be able to say, Lord, even if it's an audacious thought, but even if we had the ability somehow to change you, we would not change you in one iota. You are altogether lovely through Jesus Christ to sinners like us, full of glory, full of salvation. And we want to glorify you. We want to praise you for you are worthy. Wherever we go, whatever we do, whatever we say, we want to put in a good word for you. We want to show it with our lifestyle. We want to speak it with our words. We even want to think it. In fact, every thought, says the Apostle Paul, I want to strive to bring into captivity to Christ. This is the highest ambition of the true Christian. Not to be wealthy, not to be successful, not to receive accolades of praise from our fellow creatures, but true Christians yearn to live for the glory of God. That's my goal. That's my passion. Yes, I fail. I fail miserably so many times, but that's my resolution, my spirit-worked desire within me. I cannot deny that desire. I want to live for the glory of God. Do you? Do you really want to live for the glory of God? Is that your heartbeat? Is that your longing? Is that your sigh? Is that your prayer? Is that your passion? Whatsoever you do, do all. Whether you eat or drink, do all. All the mundane things of life, all the big things of life. Remember, you're bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your soul, which belong to God. So there's only one attitude to what life is, is worthy of doing, of being. Everything else is vain. Everything else will fade away. Everything else will end in destruction. It's just the glory of God. I want to live for his glory. I have no other goal, no other desire, no other ambition can stand in the shadow of this. And so you resolve to improve this year. Well, the one good New Year's resolution is to resolve to improve in living to the glory of God by the Spirit of God, through the Son of God, to the triune God. Now, this first text, 1 Corinthians 6.20, speaks about glorifying God in our body and our spirit, or you could say our soul. That means every aspect. That's what we are. We're body and soul, or body and spirit. So every aspect of our lives is included in 6.20. Our bodies are not our own. You know, in marriage, we understand that. Ephesians 5, Corinthians as well. The Apostle Paul is saying repeatedly, actually in the marriage state, these two shall be one, and your body belongs to your partner. So you should not defraud one another, but you should give yourself to one another in marriage. That's the staple, fundamental relationship of marriage. You give your body to one another, 
But there's also another sense, you see, in which we have to say our bodies are not our own because they belong to God. He created us for his glory. Our bodies aren't for our own use, for our own pleasure. Our bodies are to be laid as an offering before God, surrendered to him. Our minds, our intellect, our bodies, our physical strength are all to be surrendered to God. And so, boys and girls, no matter what you have in terms of your own gifts, maybe you have mechanical skills and maybe you can use your hands in a practical way. Maybe you're not so good at the more studied subjects in school. Well, that's okay. The question is, are you determined to use your gifts and your abilities to the glory of God, no matter what those are? See, God doesn't ask us to use abilities and gifts that we don't have. In the form for the ordination of elders, it, it's put so interestingly. It says, do you promise to use all your gifts according to your ability for the welfare of the church to the glory of God? And that's a whole mindset, a whole attitude. I want to spend and be spent in every gift I have, the true believer ought to be able to say, to the glory of God. So here's a thesis statement for you from these texts. Our entire life ought to be a self-giving to God that he might be glorified. Then the second text, 1031, tells us that whether we eat or drink, whatsoever we do, we do all to the glory of God. This shows us that even the smallest aspects of our lives, insignificant daily duties, ought to be consciously and deliberately done to God's honor. Nothing's more common than eating and drinking. You do it every day, several times. And there's been all kinds of eating and drinking in the last few weeks in our society, in our nation, in our homes. How much of it has been done to the glory of God, out of gratitude to God, and just so thankful that, that you want to praise God even as you eat, as you fellowship. You see, that's our vision. That's the importance of this spirit-worked resolution. It gives a direction to all of life. Life is not meaningless. You're not just an evolutionary blob that develops somehow from the bottom of the ocean, from some nebula that somehow formed life. What a crazy, unbelievable view the theory of evolution propounds. But you are personally created by God, boys and girls, teenagers, parents, grandparents, for one purpose in life, to live solely Deo Gloria. Now this resolution is not only important, it's also necessary. Why is it necessary? Well, there are many reasons. I want to look at you with three texts briefly that Jesus gives of the kingdom of heaven. If we aim for God's glory, God will aim at our good. If we aim for God's glory, God will aim at our good. If we seek the kingdom of God first, Jesus is saying, everything else we need, don't worry about it. It will be added to you by God, whether it be marriage or children or family or friends or work or money. Make the glory of God your first concern. As one old Puritan said, if you make the glory of God your first concern, 
he will make your comfort his great concern as well. Then secondly, Jesus says in Matthew 5.16, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. That doesn't mean you go out and trumpet those good works. No, but your life will just be seen. And it's not just your words. You see, it's your walk of life. And people will see that, that God is first in your life, that you have no other idols before God. And that will touch them. It will impress them. The world will sit up and notice when you're really living for the glory of God. And they may reject it for themselves, but they will recognize that you're seeking to glorify your Father, which is in heaven. People will praise God for what we are when we are true Christians who live for the glory of God. And so evangelism is not just something we do, it's something we are. Evangelism is the whole of the believer's life. It's not just what we say to people, though it is that, of course. It's how we live before people. It's how we behave in the presence of our family, at our work, and among our friends. And then the third text I want to give you is simply taken from the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, which art in heaven. And what's the first petition? Hallowed be thy name. Thy name be glorified. This is foundational to our prayers. Let your glorious being, O God, be magnified, extolled, proclaimed, made known. This is an absolute necessity, Jesus says. So if you haven't been living to the glory of God, if the glory of God is not number one in your life, what you're doing is you're breaking the first commandment at every single second of your life because you're always putting yourself before God. You're always committing self-idolatry. Idolatry is anything you put before God. And there's all kinds of things you put before God when your major concern in life is other than to glorify him. So to live to the glory of God necessarily involves self-denial. But the beauty of the way God made us is that self-denial is precisely the way to true joy. No one ever gets true happiness in life by living for themselves, because God never made you that way. When my dad took me for uh, the very first summer, I worked for him. He had some nails and wood and a hammer and a saw laying there. And he said to me the first day on the job, he said, Now, son... Remember, when you go to nail home those nails, you never use the saw. The saw is designed to cut the board, and you never use the hammer to try and cut a board, because it's not designed to do that. And I said, well, I know that, Dad. He goes, do you know why I'm telling you? And I said, no. He said, well, it's like our lives, you see. God made us for one purpose. If you live for anything else but for the glory of God, you're trying to cut a board with a hammer and you're trying to nail home a nail with a saw. It won't work. You never get happy by trying to be happy. Happiness is a byproduct of obedience. Happiness is a byproduct of living for God's glory. And then wanting to live for God's glory, you follow God's law book. You follow in obedience to God. 
You follow his Ten Commandments in every area of life. It's impossible to live for the glory of God and disobey the law of God and to live for your own law and your own pleasure. Self-denial is not a road to unhappiness. It's a road to happiness. Because when you're centered on God, you'll be truly happy indeed. And so God says, you need to follow me in obedience. In obedience. That's what Lord's Day 34 is all about. Because that's what the first commandment is all about. God is saying, flee all idolatry and give me supreme worship. Glorify me alone. Have no other gods before me. I'm a jealous God. Those of you who are married, how would you like it if your spouse came to you one day and said, yeah, I, I kind of like you, but I've got other men or other women that I like more. You'd be very upset. But what about the God of the universe who made us, who made every eyelash you have, who made every single part of the billions of parts in your body for one purpose, to glorify him, and you put other things before him? He's so worthy. He's glorious. He's beautiful. He's worthy to be served and loved. It won't work, friends. Some of us may have been doing that for a long time, I'm afraid. Even though we come to church regularly, we may still not be living for the glory of God and still haven't figured this out. It doesn't work. There's only one way to live. Everything about the first commandment cries out that we need to center on God. No other gods before me. This is prerequisite to everything in life. You cannot desire the glory of God without desiring your own good at the same time, you see. Because when you desire the glory of God, you desire the salvation of your own soul because that glorifies God. And so the two go together. That's why the Westminster Shorter Catechism says it so beautifully. What's the, what's the purpose of life? What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's why our instructor starts out his answer this way in, in 94, in question 94. What does God enjoin in the first commandment? That I, as sincerely as I desire the salvation of my own soul. He puts that interesting phrase in there. You see, he's saying, putting God first and desiring the salvation of my own soul are not oxymorons. They're, they're not at odds. They belong together because I want to glorify God with my entire being. But salvation and idolatry, they are oxymorons. They don't mix any more than oil and water mix. So really, to ask you the question, do you glorify God? Do you desire the salvation of your own soul? In one sense, it's the same question because they stand and fall together. Idolatry is putting anything above God in your own salvation, which is exactly what we did in paradise. We did that. You see, boys and girls, the first commandment says to you, God must be number one in your life. Not your bicycle, not whether other people think you're good when you show up to church, not your toys, not being pretty or handsome, 
Not your car, young people. Not your friends, your connections. Not your abilities. But God. But God. There was a lady who heard a minister preach on the first commandment once. And she was impressed with the need to put God first. She thought she had nearly arrived at the goal. And she came to the minister afterwards. She said, that was a really wonderful sermon. There's only one thing in my entire life that I can't surrender to God. Well, the minister said, then that one thing is your God. That one thing is your God. And if that one thing you can't surrender to him is there, is that one thing adequate to save you? No one can save you but God. As long as you have idols before God, whether it's through soothsaying and superstition, all the things that are listed in the catechism, sorcery, different forms of magic, superstition, invocation of saints, other creatures, many of these things you don't do, but we do all kinds of other things, don't we? We put stuff in our day before God. We put relationships before God. We put our ambitions before God, our ideas before God. And we need to have all that crucified. We need to put God back in his rightful place so that he alone is God in our soul. Anything that makes us try to act like God or try to usurp God or pull God down to our level, anything that makes us want to escape the inescapable God is a sin against the first commandment. The first commandment is very broad. It applies to every detail of our lives. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. But you notice most of this answer is positive in nature. Glorifying God and putting God first involves knowing God, rightly to know the only true God, trusting God, trust in him alone with humility and patience, submit to him, So it involves trust, humility, patience, submission, expectation, expect all good things from him only, love, fear, and glorify him with my whole heart. There you have a list of seven or eight marks of grace. This is what it is to glorify God, to rightly know him, to be humble and patient before him, to submit to him, to expect all good things from him, to love him, to fear him, to glorify him. And then comes this conclusion, so that I renounce and forsake all creatures rather than commit even the least thing contrary to his will. Well, that's strong. Renounce all creatures rather than commit the least thing contrary to his will. Can our instructor say he really does that? No, of course not. Not all the time, but that's his desire. You want to walk in obedience to God in every way and surrender your entire life to God. And so when we approach the Ten Commandments, we have to remember that every commandment governs a whole area of our life. It's not just that thou shalt not, it's a thou shall. And having no other gods before me means you shall trust God, know God, be submissive to God, expect great things from God, love God, fear God, glorify God, and not disobey God. This is the way to live.
Now, if you don't want to glorify God in the bottom of your heart, you see what you need to understand this afternoon is that your whole life is one big, humongous, prolonged sin against the first commandment. No matter how hard you've tried, no matter what you've done, if you don't desire the glory of God, you've never for one second done anything to please God spiritually. That's hard. Hard to accept that. But if you see your own depravity, that you've never been centered on God, then you realize you're always missing the mark. No matter how good your outward works are, if you don't glorify God, you're missing everything you need. And so God's commandments are like his promises. They're fulfilled in Christ. And so we go to Christ with all our shortcomings, and we plead with him to take away our sin, and we plead with him to give us a heart that yearns to glorify him. A single eye. Give me a single eye, thy name to glorify. Christ can do that. We can't. The Spirit can do it in us. And so we go to the triune God. Give me the grace to do what I cannot do myself in Jesus and by the Spirit. Give me grace to glorify you supremely, to glorify you exclusively, to glorify you continually, to glorify you only. May that be my motto for this year. May it be my model for my life, for every Sabbath, for every day, for everything. Whatsoever I eat, whatsoever I drink, whatever I do, let me do it for the glory of God. This is absolutely important and is grounded in this childlike obedience by faith in Jesus Christ. Well, perhaps you think I'm overstating the case this afternoon. After all, aren't we to look after ourselves and our own things as well? Aren't we to do what one ungodly minister said to me, I've served God for 40 years now. For the rest of my life, I don't think God minds if I serve myself. God does mind. God minds if you serve yourself for one minute because he didn't make you to serve yourself. Well, you say, but that raises questions in my mind and here they are. Why really should I live only to, go to God's glory? Well, the answer is because God aims in all his creation at his own glory. So that includes you. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament showeth his handiwork. God made all things for his own glory, also you. So that must be the end and aim of your being. Question two you might have. But why does God permit so much sin and evil in the world then, if he lives, if he does everything for his own glory? Why so many tragedies? Why so many Christmas blues in these weeks from so many people in the world? And why so many problems in my life? Well, the Lord does all things to direct us to him. And he does all things for his glory. He even makes the evil for his glory. Proverbs 16.4 the Lord made all things for himself, yea, even the wicked for the day of evil, to manifest his own attributes of justice and holiness. It's all for God's glory. Yes, but why did God then just choose certain sinners to be his people? 
Well, Ephesians 1, having predestinated us into the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace. He elects for his own glory. Oh, but but why then? Question four. Does God keep his people in this world so long when for them to die is gain? Won't they glorify him more in glory? Well, the answer is that the Apostle Paul tells us that God wanted to keep him here a while so he could edify the Philippians and be witnesses to them for God's glory. Question five. What will God do in the end when he takes them to glory? Well, what will God do for his people in glory? He'll just show them his glory from start to finish, from creation through providence to recreation to heaven itself. God is aiming at one thing, his glory. That's why his foundational law is don't put anything else before me. Now, if that's God's aim, it certainly ought to be the creature's aim. And that's really what sin is, you see. The law plays a major role in teaching us how to live for God's glory by exposing our sin and then by making us flee to the end of the law, the Lord Jesus Christ. The law teaches us that sin is the failure to aim at that which God is aiming at and failing to harmonize with what God is intending. So sin is the jarring, discordant note of the universe that God our maker is aiming at his glory and we on earth are aiming at our own glory at anything but the glory of God. So ask God to make it your 2023 resolution by his spirit that you by the grace of God will seek to live for his glory. Dear young people, your life is ahead of you for the most part, humanly speaking. There are lots of exciting opportunities out there in the world. Lots of directions you can go. But let me just say this to you. What you need to do is get down on your knees when you go home today. And just pray this prayer. Lord, whatever direction that you will lead me in, help me to consecrate my entire life to you. Help me to desire to be whatever you would have me to be in this world. And wherever I go and whatever I do, Lord, let me be a witness to you, to devote to you all my strength, all my mind, all my soul. Let my hands, my feet, my eyes, my fingers, my time, my affections all be used in your service. And dear young people, that's what this world needs most of all from you. That attitude, that demeanor. The world desperately needs young men and young women who will glorify God in their body and in their spirit, who will be pure so that when they marry, they will be faithful and bring up their children in the fear of God. What a blessing if we would take our own schemes and thoughts and plans about all that we're going to do this year and tear them up into little pieces and throw them away and start over by beginning with this. Whatsoever I do and say and think this year, I want to do it for the glory of God. Now, Lord, what shall I do? And how shall I think about it? And where shall I go? You would enjoy your year much more when you start out with the glory of God. And you mothers, 
What power lays in your hands, training children, raising them up in the fear of God? Truly, the hand that rocks the cradle that rules the world is a mother's hand. You don't need to be ministers, women, or, or elders, or deacons to have your mighty sphere of influence in shaping the world. You do it by shaping children. Think of how Augustine was shaped by Monica or Spurgeon by his mother. If you were to go to a conference of ministers or missionaries and ask, how many of you were profoundly influenced spiritually by your mother, almost every hand would be raised. Dear mother, if you can live for the glory of God, it will impact your family far beyond what you can measure. And God can use you for the salvation of not just of your family, but through your children, they may minister to others. You can have an impact far, far beyond what you can possibly imagine. What a blessing that Dutch and Scottish and New England Puritan mothers were in their generations. The stories are just amazing of how boys grew up into manhood under the prayers and teaching of godly mothers and often towered above their generation, filled with passion for the glory of God. And you fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and show by your leadership, by your family worship leadership, by talking to your children that you're most excited about, most passionate about the glory of God in their lives. Don't just provoke them to anger with all the thou shalt nots, but be positive as well and show them that this is the way to live for the glory of God. This brings joy. This brings purpose. This brings meaning and fulfillment. Let them see it in you, Dad, that you are governed by the glory of God. And let that be the passion of this church as well, this very dear congregation. Oh, that every one of us in this church would so support each other and be one family for the glory of God, outwardly doing things for one another, but also inwardly praying for one another loving one another for the glory of God. We need to reach out to one another to love one another for the glory of God. Is there someone you could encourage in Christ today you never have before? And then we need as citizens of this country, don't we, to be passionate about the glory of God. We do need to grieve when our nation goes in, in very awry directions, unbiblical, immoral directions, as we saw this past year. We do need to be praying to be wrestlers at the throne of grace for the great needs that exist. We do need to cry out that God would restore our land to yet again be a city on a hill for his glory. We do need to feel that burden and we need to be active in warning against the evils of our day. Active in petitioning leaders, active as citizens of this nation, aiming for the glory of God. But we also need in our own little homes and our own little family units, we need this passion. Let's live family for the glory of God. Children, parents, together. This is where all generation gaps are broken down, where everyone in a family has one purpose, one direction, rowing the boat the same way. We want to live by the grace of God for the glory of God. So let's go home and let's examine ourselves. Does the glory of God really have the upper place in our homes, in our families? Or is it our computers or, or phones or risque material on the internet or unedifying books or 
identifying friendships. What do you really live for? Oh, you're bought with a price, and therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Whether you eat or whether you drink, whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God.